joy it will be at last to gaze upon the face of our Savior, to know our God in his blessed Son. This evening, we are coming to the worship of God in preaching, and we will read together from Habakkuk, or again, Habakkuk if you prefer, chapter 3, verses 1 through 16. And before you turn there, perhaps you're already on the way, let's just pause and settle our hearts upon the God who speaks and draw near in prayer. Oh, Father, you have committed to us exceeding great and precious promises. You have unveiled yourself in Christ in the sight of the nations. Your judgments are in all the earth. And as we come this evening, we would not do so with flippancy or that sort of sluggishness, somnolence, distraction that so frequently attends our coming to you. We pray, O Father, that you who are of great grace would open our understanding Give us a true sight of what the prophet was given to know. Give us that holy reverence and awe and fear of God that is just and right when we come into your presence. Teach our hearts, unite our hearts to fear your name. Write your word upon our hearts. Show us, as we humble ourselves before you and your awesome splendor, the mighty grace, the awesome goodness of Jesus Christ, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 1 through 16, beginning on page 786 in the Bibles that are in the pews. Habakkuk chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shiginoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran, His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise, Selah. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague, followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses or your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows, Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped. At the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth 
in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck, Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor. In secret, you trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will wait, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. This is God's holy word. Fear. Fear is what we are to do as we come to this passage. The God who comes with such might and power, who comes as warrior to advance his cause and the progress of his kingdom in the world. It's almost as though we can hear the clashing and the clanking of the armor and the swords, the spears, the javelins, all the arrows flinging through the air. But above it, a note sounds, a song, a prayer. The prophet is praying, not only beholding God in his glory, but from that glory, from the terrifying majesty of God, lifting to God this petition. Wars are conducted by commands. There's a chain of command in warfare. And I would give you from the prophet's prayer this evening three commands suitable to our time, the midst of the years, that we are to hear and plead, remember and wait. Look with me, if you will. Keep your Bible open at verses 1 through 2, where we, together with the prophet, are called to plead the work of God with fear. Hear and plead his work. And this is what he says. Verse 2, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. Habakkuk fears what God is going to do. And maybe if you recall from previous times that we've looked at this prophecy, that God has spoken of his determination. He would send judgment upon Israel. He would, in fact, wipe them out, wipe all their wickedness away with the terrifying judgment of the foreign nation Babylon. But that would not be the end. Because God would even bring toppling to the ground that great kingdom and empire crashing into the dust. It's an astonishing thing to think that one of the greatest empires of the world, by the might and anger of God, was brought down in such a short time. Habakkuk, in wisdom, says, I hear and I fear. If God comes in such wrath, we ought to fear. If God comes in such wrath without mercy, then there is no hope at all for anyone. This brings us really, I think, initially to the doctrine of hell. It's good for us to consider. There have been in the course of long years, many serious errors about divine wrath and retribution, but I'd like to highlight two of them. Some people would hold to the heresy of universalism, and that's the claim that 
at the end, everybody's going to be saved. God's a God of love. Everyone must come at last to heaven. Another error is to say, and there are some who say this, that those who don't embrace Christ in the gospel will simply be annihilated, wiped out, and passed out of existence altogether. And I want you to see God coming in his judgment. There is no room anywhere in Scripture for these false teachings. It would be as if God came with an empty threat, like the parent who warns his child repeatedly but never does anything and finally caves in and gives, sure, you can have that ice cream you want, but God doesn't speak like this. He never speaks without intending to do what he has purposed. Yes, his mercy is great, but so is his wrath. And if he intends to carry out his purpose, he will certainly tell us as he has. The Bible even tells us of those who in the present hour, even as we gather today in worship, are even now suffering under the unbending, furious wrath of God in hell. And if we deny this, then we make God out to be deceptive, manipulative, lying, a false God altogether. And he is no longer than the truth-telling God that he claims to be. He can't be relied upon. He should not be worshipped. But you, dear friends, you and I know from Scripture and from our own experience that the God of the Bible never lies. He is altogether true. And hell is altogether real. His punishment there is unending. As it says in Hebrews 10, we know him. You know him, I might say, who said, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Do you hear the fear echoing through Habakkuk's prophecy? Once he comes to terms with the might and the majesty of God in his wrath, there is fear. It is a fearful thing. Why do people, why do some people reject the doctrine of hell? I would suggest to you that maybe they actually understand what it means. They get the implications that God's fury poured out in undying death and misery and sorrow and pain upon those who don't trust in Christ and who reject his gospel is really, really awful. They may even understand it, dare I say, better than we do sometimes. We are often so tepid about hell that we fear to bring it up, like the person who is afraid to offend his friend and so doesn't tell him that he's about to drink poison. Maybe we are sometimes no better in our practice than the unbelief of others who embrace a false doctrine. The unending torment of eternal punishment has already been spelled out in some ways in chapter 2 in the woes that God asserts he will bring upon Babylon. All these various woes that we find coming to their conclusion, coming to a sort of climactic moment in Revelation when it says the smoke and because of smoke, the fire of Babylon goes on forever and ever. These are the woes that he will bring upon the world. And he will strip from all who do not believe the gospel, all possibility of enjoyment, all possibility of ever escaping. And this for us, dear believers, is sometimes almost, if we're honest with ourselves, unbearable to think about because you know people and I know people who are heading to this place. It is a fearful thing. And our flesh would very much like to strip hell of this terrifying reality. But this is the justice of God. 
This is his righteousness, not just for Babylonian unbelievers and the culture despisers, but all who do not repent of sin and their self-righteousness, even in the church, must experience this wrath. There is much to fear. We are wise. We are not fools, but wise, if with Habakkuk we fear. But Habakkuk doesn't just tremble. He offers to God a plea in verse 2. In the midst of the years, revive your work. He again, and we've seen this before in Habakkuk, acts like the advocate for God's people, like Abraham or like Moses, pleading for the people of God. And we can and ought to plead on the basis of what God has done that he would again revive what he has done before because his work is wrath. But never wrath alone. Wrath mingled with mercy. And so we find a kind of amazing, really an astonishing transformation of the prophet at this point. Up until now, what we have heard in, in Habakkuk's speeches are a sort of complaining and possibly even discontent, maybe even self-righteousness about God's coming judgment. But he's transformed. And he asks, he requests and pleads that God would do the very thing that he previously thought was wrong. He calls upon God to execute his judgments. Revive your work, this work of wrath. Send the Babylonians. Fulfill your righteousness. Destroy the Babylonians. Accomplish all your wrath. Come, do your will. Let your eternal justice be seen. No longer delay, O God. But do not forget your mercy. God's great work is his justice, but never apart from his mercy. God's mighty work of mercy in these days must have seemed to the prophet, to the people of God, to be slumbering. Where is the salvation of God? Where is deliverance from the sins that will bring upon Israel such a mighty nation as Babylon? It seemed as though the promise of his coming, the coming of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, to save and rescue his people might even be lost. Dear brothers and sisters, you know this is not the case. We stand on the other side of an empty tomb. We look back with joy to accomplish salvation. There is no longer for us any reason to think God is not actively working and bringing his justice and his mercy to pass. Christ has come into the world to save sinners. But we must make a contrast here between the first coming of the Lord Jesus and the second coming Because he came, first of all, as a lowly servant. He suffered under the wickedness of his creation. He bore the wrath of God for our sins. But now he is risen in his glory. His character has not changed. He is still filled with mercy. It is only his condition that has changed. He is better seen now that he is exalted in his majestic glory ruling and reigning over all things. This is how John comes to see him at the beginning of Revelation. And if you were to read that appearance of Christ to John, you would find many of these same sort of metaphorical, powerful images coming out in that proclamation of Christ's risen glory. He is no longer hidden by the clouds, filled with all the glory of God. This is who our Jesus is. And when he arises for the salvation of his people... There can be no stopping him. His enemies will be scattered. The same Jesus 
who suffered, the same Jesus will come with salvation for his people and vengeance for his enemies. And so this ought then to be our prayer. We know already God has given us his son. Revive, O God, your work of mercy, of wrath. Stir up your might, as it says in Psalm 80. Come and save us from our sins. Come and save us from our enemies. And he will. That day is coming soon. But now maybe you're asking yourself, since we brought up the topic of hell, how can God possibly be actually merciful if there really is a hell? If there is the kind of judgment that Habakkuk envisions, that Revelation speaks of, smoke forever and ever, how can God be merciful? Dear friend, hasn't God given to the world his most beloved son in mercy? That the world might be saved through him? Isn't that the greatest mercy that Jesus Christ would come into the world except to pay the price of hell for all who trust in him and bear the burden of eternal wrath? That is mercy. Our God is not without mercy because there is a hell. Hell is the demonstration of the mercy of God. When we look and we gaze just for a moment into the flames and torment that many will experience, we do not only behold the justice of God against sinners, but the mercy he has had to us in his Son. Consider what it is he has delivered you from. If you're uncertain you're out of the escape of that inferno, then do what Habakkuk does, fear and plead with God. If you have staked all your hopes on Christ who has come here and fear and plead with God to magnify his work in the midst of the years and make it known because he will certainly not forget his mercy to us. He is never just just. Isn't that good news? If God were only ever just, but he's merciful, full of tender kindness to us, steadfast love and faithfulness have met righteousness and peace have kissed each other, it says in Psalm 85, at the cross where Christ bore our burden. And so the prophet can really pray and plead with God to accomplish what is coming for him, what is finished for us, and in fear anticipate Mercy, because he knows that great climactic verse, perhaps even of the whole entirety of the Old Testament, that's there in chapter 2, verse 4, that the just, the righteous one, shall live, shall live, and not be destroyed in the consuming anger of God, shall live by his faith and the Christ who's come for us. Hear and plead with God for such. But also then, verses 3 through 15, I want you to notice that we are also to remember God's work with fear. Habakkuk, in verses 3 through 15, brings up what God has done in history. And if you like, he gives us a sort of composite picture of God's righteous salvation. God is pictured as a great warrior. He's stepping forth onto the scene of history to execute his justice and his mercy, to bring salvation to his people. It's like there's a a sort of patchwork view of all these wonderful events that have happened in God's gracious work with his people, and they're brought together in one powerful image. You can see some of the traces of the Exodus, the conquest of Canaan, references to Israel's journey through the wilderness, the plagues that are in Egypt, 
the giving of the law at Sinai, the defeat of Israel's enemies at the time of the judges, Israel's crossing of the Jordan and of the Red Sea, water gushing forth from the rock, Joshua's battle against the Amorites when the sun and the moon are commanded to stay, and they do, and the whole conquest of Canaan. Some of you probably have what we have in our house, a book of pictures. Some of you might have seen our little book of pictures of Karamoja, which delights us a great deal. We look through that and remember, and we think upon those people and the relationships. That's what Habakkuk is doing. He's paging through the photo album, if you like, of God's mighty acts of salvation and saying this, this whole tells me who my God is who the great God of the ages is, the same in all, advancing in victory with might, with wrath, and with salvation. There is a sort of terrifying picture of God given to us here. And I'm sorry, Hollywood may have some pretty impressive CGI. There is nothing to compare with the awesome reality of God appearing on that great and terrible day. This is not just a sort of buzz, a captivating insight into who God is that we can be interested. Wow, is he really like that? We are meant with Habakkuk to experience something of the trembling and the terror of the coming of God. Real, deep, wild, powerful, an awesome event beyond all comprehension. God comes in wrath and salvation. Verses 3 through 7, picture the approach of God. Verses 8, all the way up through, all the way up through 11, picture God's opening of the way. And then in the concluding verses of this section, his march forward. I want you to notice just briefly each one of these, God approaching with his people in terrifying fury. It says, in verse 3, that God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. These are waypoints of Israel as they're passing through the wilderness from Egypt to the Promised Land. It isn't just God that comes up, is it? It's Israel with him. It isn't just Israel passing through the wilderness. It's God with his people. And Moses speaks of this in Deuteronomy 33. In fact, Really much of what Habakkuk is saying here is drawn directly out of various statements in Deuteronomy. But this is Moses' blessing of the people of Israel before his death. The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. And if you're paying attention as we go through, you'll notice these same ones. How does God approach? He comes in a blazing procession of majesty, his army, his might, at his full command. We read in the latter part of verse 3 that his splendor covers the heavens. The whole earth is filled with his praise. Before, he had appeared in his temple, in his tabernacle, with this radiance. Now the whole earth is enveloped in glory. There is no escape. The darkness is chased away by the light and the brilliance of God. Nothing can escape him. Nothing is hidden from him. All things must give him praise. Now you might say to yourself, I didn't see that. I don't know what that was like, but dear friend, you shall. And you are meant to picture this. Nothing in all creation, willingly or otherwise, will fail to give him praise. 
His brightness, it says, is as the light. Brilliance beyond all created light, illuminated, made known, seen and beheld by all rational creation. Rays, it says, or in another translation, horns, barbs of power flashing out of his hand with such intensity from his might that his power itself is hidden. It's a remarkable statement that's made there. In verse 4, there he veiled his power. Another way to say this would be that God's power becomes, in all of his glory, less significant, as it were, when we actually see him in his radiant glory. His power is great. His glory, we might even say, if it's possible with God, is greater. And so, we are to tremble. Not just in terror of what he can do, but in fear of what he is. Pestilence and plague stalk at his vanguard and the rear of his army in convoy with God. Consider how tiny are the nations. Your God comes upon the scene of history and the mighty army of Pharaoh is gone. The Assyrian host, 185,000, wiped out in a single night. God comes. He measures with his glance. He causes the mountains and all earth to tremble. It's as though the procession is making its way up from Egypt. God coming from Sinai, approaching the promised land, and the earth is treated like you would treat in your kitchen, a measuring cup of flour. You shake it out just to make sure it goes all the way to right and level. And this is what God does simply by gazing upon what he has made. Everything shudders and quivers and trembles, and the mountains skip like rams, and the little hills like lambs. When God appears, when he revives his work, the world must tremble. Nothing can remain but his own ways. As it says, his ways are the everlasting ways. And the nations tremble. The tents of Cushan are in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian tremble. This is how God approaches in salvation. This is how he is even, these are even references, it would appear, to Judges chapter 3, as well as chapters 6 and 7, God delivering his people from their enemies in the land. If the mountains sway and melt, if Sinai is engulfed in flame and whirlwind, then surely the flimsy tents of the nations must fall. Don't put your hope in princes or in the sons of men. God approaches. He approaches with fury and opens the way. We read in verses 8 through 11, opening the way for the passage of his people. He opens the Jordan River. His wrath is against the rivers, against the sea. The point is not God is angry with the creation so much. God is angry with the Egyptians He comes with the armies of heaven, with all the angelic hosts, riding on his chariot, as it were, furious that there should be any who would oppose his mercy to his people. He comes with such salvation. Pharaoh thinks it's his horses, his chariots, his military mights, we might say his tanks, his airplanes that are going to win the day. And God comes, riding to save his people, riding against the usurper. Creation moves out of the way. And people don't. Verses 12 through 15. God, opening the way, marches through in fury for the salvation of his people. And notice particularly what it says. You went, verse 13, for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your 
anointed one. Yes, for his people, to be sure. But specifically for the salvation of one out of all. The anointed, the chosen, the one appointed to lead. And if you know your Old Testament history, that anointing is shared by so many. Think of Moses, Joshua, David, the priests, who all bow to the great Messiah, to Christ, God's anointed and chosen one. It was for their salvation he approaches, or dare we say even better, it is for the salvation of Jesus Christ, the hated and crucified, that God in his fury approaches. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the great cataclysmic earthquake that reveals in all of history the mighty wrath and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ, of the Father in his love for his Son and for you in his Son. There are all of these sorts of pre-shocks, if you like, tremors of Easter morning throughout the Old Testament history. But at that moment, there's a sudden upending of the creation. The bars are torn away as we sing. God makes a way through the rock. The anointed son is brought out in living glory. God revived his work in the midst of the years. Works that had long ago seemed dead, that had passed from memory, Fears that God had forgotten were at once put to rest. He was known. He magnified himself on resurrection day. The enemies come like a whirlwind against the Son of God, but they are the ones who are pierced. No waters, no floods, no stone barriers can overwhelm the love of God for his anointed And that kind of puts life in perspective a little bit, doesn't it? The upending of all creation is what God has done in order to save you. The disordering of death, the turning back of the curse. Dear friends, our worries are really rather small when we have such a great God who reveals himself and executes salvation and brings it to pass, revives his work in the midst of the years in his Son. All of this, all of this language of warriors and God's powerful working in the history of Israel is meant to make you see Jesus here. It's good. It's right that we think back over the history of God's mighty acts in history. His character and his work has not changed. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God has not gone to therapy and gone to anger management. He is still the God of anger who for the sake of his beloved son will tear apart the created order. For the sake of mercy will upend what now seems impossible to overcome. And at last Jesus will come in the same glory, in greater glory. The whole earth filled with his glory as we read in chapter 2, silent before him, splendor covering the heavens, the earth filled with his praise, and every eye shall see him. Even those who pierced him and those who are dead now will be raised. 
we ought to tremble. It's good that we as Christians quickly say, yes, that is God's anger, but Christ died for me. It's good, it's right that we say that. Perhaps sometimes we too quickly pass over the reality of what that means, that this does not mean an alteration in God and a dismissal of his wrath against sin. We might even be a little bit like Agag, the king of the Old Covenant, who comes and speaks to Samuel and says, surely the bitterness of death is past. Oh, no, it is not past, dear friends. Wrath must still be carried out. Justice must be done. Fury against sinners carried out. God doesn't just switch on the happy switch. He hasn't suddenly got religion, you might say. He is what he has always been. There is no contradiction. No unpredictability. No changing of the way that he reveals himself like the modalist God of the popular book, The Shack. He is what he has been without variation, without change. The almighty warrior who comes with wrath to carry out, to execute vengeance on his enemies and to bring salvation to his people. We read in Psalm 45 these words of our Savior. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. This is the warrior, the most beautiful among men, the acclaimed one whose words are gracious, most blessed of God forever, comes righteous, just, and merciful and takes in himself the burden of your sin and will carry out at last all God's purposes against his enemies. Yes, we ought to tremble. Hear and plead. Remember, verse 16, wait. Wait for the working of God with true fear. We read in verse 16 once again. I hear. Again, remember, he's paging through history. He's thinking of God's mighty acts imaged before him. I hear and my body trembles. My lip, my lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. It's the right response. If earth can tremble before the mighty God of Jacob, then we ought to as well, even as he comes for our salvation. It is right and it is good for us to fear Christ. It's true in Revelation. He sets his hand upon John and he says, do not fear, stand up, as he does to all of his prophets. And yet it is right with reverence to approach the terrifying God who came to us in the manger. Imagine what will happen at his second coming. What are we to do in our fear? We are, this is the proper response of true fear of God, of a holy trembling before God. We are to wait. Habakkuk again says, verse 16, Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. I will wait. He trembles, but he quiets down. The fear of who God is and what he has promised to do unsettles us 
but it resettles us on God himself. And suddenly we find that the things that we felt were so urgent, the complaints that we had against providence are really nothing. Indeed, we lay our hand upon our mouth like Job. Could we behold God as he is? Could we have the experience of Habakkuk envisioning God in his might, his splendor, his majesty, wrath, and mercy? Could we see him rightly? Then we would be like the angels in heaven and bow in adoration. Moses, beholding God on Sinai, says, I tremble with fear. We get so riled up, don't we? There's a lot to be riled up about. Just look at headlines. Perhaps, one can hope it's not true in God's providence, but perhaps World War III on our back door. But did we perceive the reality of who God is? As he really is then we would stop our trembling and irritation at what's happening at the gas pump, our frustration with the world that we live in, and we would tremble in the fear of God who is coming with much greater might. This is what we are called to do, to come and think seriously of God, to approach him with reverent adoration. We may not toy with him. There is none of us who may just have a little bit of God and play around with him in our lives because all the little thoughts of God are going to evaporate in the blazing day of his glory. God is to be worshipped. God is to be adored. God is to be waited upon as he prepares to revive his work on that last day. Even now he speaks through his word. He speaks roaring. The lion of the tribe of Judah has spoken and who, as Amos says, will not fear. Who will not fear? O Lord, and glorify your name. You alone are holy. We read in Revelation, all nations will come and worship before you for your righteous acts have been revealed. The proper study of mankind is not man, ultimately, is it? But God, God who is coming in terror, with wrath, terrifyingly real. Not some figment concocted by people who are seeking to oppress others long ago with a religion that was just made up for the sake of civilization. We, as we conclude, need this fear of God. And it comes from a true sight of God. It comes when God revives and renews his work in the midst of the years. It comes as his people cry out to him and say, oh God, make it known. This is one of the great revival texts. In the midst of the years, revive your work. Whatever you may think of the first and second great awakening and other seasons of revival in the church, We need this revival. Not a reviving of man's efforts to reach up to God, but a reviving of God's mighty acts in history to save his people with mercy to rescue us out of our wickedness, our self-righteousness, and our false expectations of the future. We need to pray. We really ought to pray for this sort of a revival. for refreshing new life to come upon us, that clear sight of God that transcends all other concerns.
we ought to mourn our coldness of heart and tremble that we are not what we should be, but tremble also that Jesus Christ has opened the grave and won for us salvation that can never be taken away, that is never insecure. We need to pray for this. That God would make us a trembling people. Because he says this. Isaiah 66 verse 2. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Let's pray and ask God for such faith. Lord, we know, not as well as you do, but we know in ourselves, we have a desperate need that you would revive your work in us, in the world, in the church, in the midst of these years. Oh, Lord, we live in a world rushing on to wrath, to hell. In your wrath, we pray, remember your mercy. You have come with salvation for your people. The mighty warrior King Jesus has gone and borne the terrible load, has paid the price, has broken through death itself to rescue us who are dead in our sins. Oh, God. From his great and mighty work, renew, enliven your people. Make your work to be known in us. Cause us again to behold Jesus in his glory. Cause us with joy and with proper, not slavish, but true, reverent fear to tremble at your word. Look to us, we pray. Give to us that reverent heart that we know we lack, but which Jesus is able to give the one to whom you look. Hear us, we pray, as we have heard this report. O Lord, remember your mercy as we remember your might. O God, save us in the midst of these years. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.